Well, you may know that uh, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is in all four Gospels. Um, but I think if we're really going to mine the riches of this story, we need to pay attention to what's going on all around it on the edges and under the surface. We get a little hint of that in verse 13 today. It says, when Jesus heard this, well, what did he hear? We want to explore that a little bit. We need to see what's going on in Jesus, I think, and in his disciples. Matthew gives us a window into this, and we see it elsewhere in the other Gospels. We get to see the human complexity amid this heavenly moment. There's a lot of that here. Where we pick the story up in Matthew 14, Jesus has just heard that his cousin who we know as John the Baptist, has been beheaded by King Herod. It's a terrible story. You could go back and read it. Um, just unjust, corrupt, appalling. And so this horrifying news, it came immediately after Jesus' painful trip to his hometown of Nazareth, where the people who knew him best were offended by him and rejected his ministry. So these are two significant emotional blows that Jesus has just endured, back to back. There's more to consider, though, too. Mark 6 and Luke 9 tell us that the disciples, that, you know, that Jesus and his disciples, they have reunited after Jesus has sent them out two by two to preach repentance, to heal the sick, and to confront evil spirits and to cast them out in Jesus' own authority. The disciples return in this moment. They're excited to tell their stories, but Jesus also sees that they are tired. In Mark, he tells them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. It's taken it out of them. So this privacy and solitude that Jesus seeks in Matthew's account, it apparently includes the disciples. In some way, and at some point, the Greek here in Matthew's um, idios, it doesn't necessarily mean by himself as the ESV translates it. It just means apart or separately. And it looks like the disciples are with him in this way. And we see this practically when the boat lands, right? And just a little bit later, and the disciples are still with Jesus. So what does it tell us? It tells us that this retreat is for them also. It's needful. Surely some of them are grieving John's death too, particularly Andrew and John, who had been disciples of John the Baptist. They're carrying more than the weight of just lo losing a beloved friend or a relative. It must have felt, just think about it, it must have felt like evil has won a significant battle. And to me, this would feel like an abrupt gut, gut punch after uh, all of this successful ministry that the disciples have been doing. John's been murdered. So let's get away together, Jesus says to them. There's a problem. What we know from both Matthew and Mark is that they really only had some time on the water together going from A to B. People from the towns and cities had been following Jesus relentlessly. Presumably, I'd picture them maybe following along the shoreline trying to figure out where he's going to go. And they were waiting when they finally beached their boat. Luke tells us it was somewhere near Bethsaida, it was a remote place, but somewhere near the hometown of um, Peter and Andrew, also Philip was from Bethsaida. So when Jesus gets out of the boat and sees all these people waiting for him, his heart breaks. Matthew uses a word to describe them that shows up nowhere else in the New Testament to describe the sick. We translate it, or the ESV translates it, the sick. But Matthew says they are the arastos, they're the wretched ones. 
Jesus had compassion on them, on, and he healed all the wretched ones, the feeble ones. Everywhere else, Matthew uses a different word for sick, kakos. But these are the wretched ones. And presumably, he chooses that word, a heavier word, for these people suffering to match the depth of the compassion that he saw that Jesus had for them. It's a literary choice. It's a good one. So we know that Jesus goes on to minister to the massive crowd until late in the day. We don't know when he began, but we know it's late in the day. And by then, the disciples are done. They are done, done. Have you ever been just done, done after a day, right? Matthew remembers one of them saying, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Do you notice anything strange in that? It's easy to overlook. Virtually every other time that they address, the disciples address Jesus in Matthew's gospel, they begin with Lord or teacher. An address of respect. But not this time. It's interesting. It sounds kind of curt. It's direct. And it includes an order. Send them away. Jesus is undeterred. In verse 16, he responds, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They're done, done. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. What do they do? Probably what I would do, they respond with the practical and the obvious. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. In Mark's gospel, they sound annoyed. They say, that would take more than half a year's wages. And there's an exclamation point, at least in our translation. More than half a year's wages. Are we to go that and spend that much on bread and give them something to eat? They're, they're being contrarian here, right? They're arguing with Jesus. At the end of the day, they're even more tired. They're carrying grief. And they are apparently irritated. Jesus says, bring the fish and the bread to me. He organizes the crowd in groups of 50 and 100, according to Mark. He looks up to heaven and says a blessing over the, over the bread and the fish. And then the weary and grieving Jesus then gives the food to his weary and grieving disciples who then begin passing it out. And as they do, it becomes enough after all. More than enough. And I imagine that each of the 12 disciples holding a full basket in astonishment. Maybe with a little mix of embarrassment. So what do you imagine that Jesus is trying to teach them? I mean, this miracle isn't simply a demonstration of divine power. It could be. It would make sense for it to be. But, you know, Jesus' miracles rarely, if ever, are just demonstrations of divine power. And he's not merely trying to reenact the story of Yahweh God providing manna from heaven for his ex exodus people. Though that's certainly in view. It's always in view in Jesus. The story of Israel gathered up in Jesus is always in view of, of his own saving and shepherding work. He is showing them something about the tether between his own life and the story of Israel. But there's more, and I think the central message of this story, given the details that we have, if we take our time to sort of live in the story and the details that Matthew in particular gives us, we find, I think the message is twofold. First one, pretty obvious, I think. First, foundationally, Jesus is always the source. Always the bottomless well of blessing and abundance for the world. Not us. 
Even here in the midst of his own need and his own pain, his love provides. There is more in Jesus. Even when there's not much in us. Which leads to the second thing. At the end of the day, literally and figuratively, Jesus wants his blessing and his abundance to flow through his disciples. Even when they are grieving and weary and reluctant. Even when they're short on supplies and even short on faith. This is his desire. It will not be, here's the thing. It's not going to be their faith. It's not going to be their plan. It's not going to be their strength that produces the next serving of bread or fish for the next hungry belly. It's not their faith that will produce that. It will be His provision and blessing sourced by the well of His compassion and His willingness. In a hard moment, the end of the day, their role in this moment is what? To participate with Him. To follow Him. It's maybe not a word we like to use a lot, but it's in the Bible all over the place, to obey. To trust to do what he says to do, to take the pieces they've been given and start giving them away. So what about us? What might this mean for us? Probably a lot of the same. As much as we might hope to have in ourselves enough strength and enough knowledge, enough stamina, enough faith and willingness and time to do what Jesus has called us to do, I think we rarely do, if ever, have enough. Faced with the absurd notion of feeding thousands, the disciples can only count to seven. And I think that's kind of true of us too. They are us and we are them. We default to a place of scarcity. And often that's why we're reluctant to even pick up the bread. It's near impossible, I think, for us to imagine that we have something that will make a difference when we confuse our own lives as the source. That's what we work from. When we think what we're giving can or must draw consistently from the well of our own goodness and our own readiness amid optimal circumstances. I've never experienced these optimal circumstances, I guess, that we all are hoping will come around eventually. Have you? Often when we begin to believe that that's how it works, optimal circumstances and having all the things that we need within ourselves, there's a good chance that, we're giving, that, that what we're giving out and how maybe even we're ministering, it becomes more about us than Jesus or those we're serving. Our own competence, it centers on and it tries to draw from our own sense of altruism or largesse. And it seems to me I, even that the late modern church uh, in America is often either swamped with moralistic social saviors or people far too discouraged or far too distracted to lean in and depend on Jesus. Participating with Him together. Giving out what He's giving us. Friends, I, I, mean, I think that obedience is almost never what we feel capable of doing. And it's often not what we actually want to do. More often than not, and maybe all the time, obedience is just an act of faith by which Jesus draws us to himself more than to an outcome. 
Sometimes, at least in my experience, the outcome is simply our participation in the thing. To lean in. To see what Jesus does. Partnership with our bodies, with our time, with our resources. The biting of our tongues. Or the releasing of them to speak as a faith act. A participation in the will of God, regardless of the clarity or certainty of the outcome. And against all odds, very often. Because at the end of the day, Jesus isn't asking us to do something for Him. Do you know that? We don't have much to offer, even at our best. Jesus is calling us to do everything with Him. And with everything we have. I'm going to tell you a personal story. Um, in the summer of 1997, uh, I worked and scrimped and saved to special order my dream guitar. It was an Alvarez Yairi WY1K. It was handmade in Japan. It was the signature guitar of Ani DeFranco, who was one of my favorite artists, songwriters at the time. She's still great. My always generous stepfather, he helped me with about the last third of the cost of this guitar. And when I returned from my senior year of undergrad, a friend named Randy, who had been really instrumental in my journey of faith, really he and another guy led me to faith. He was playing a lot of gigs. He was writing a lot of worship songs, just visceral stuff, deep stuff. But three years prior, he had nearly bled out in a bathtub from an LSD-induced suicidal mania. He almost died. But now the Lord had rescued him and given this incredible ministry that was melting faces everywhere he went, melting mind, melting hearts. And if you've ever had a friend who embodied the unconventional bohemian spirit, Randy was that friend of mine. I had actually a good handful of those, but Randy was the most bohemian kind of guy. He couch surfed, he taught guitar lessons, made handmade flutes, he sold crayon drawings, and he worked at a bookstore sometimes. Guitars came and went in his life, and at this particular time, he was borrowing one just to play, including my Yairi. One day, I was driving to his gig to hand off my guitar, and I felt this overwhelming sense that I was supposed to give it to him. I was like, no, that's crazy talk. That, I, I thought, it's crazy, ha-ha, silly me, where'd that come from? But it wouldn't let me go. I, t I turned up my music. I had a sound system that cost more than the actual car I was driving. I turned it up, and I tried to think of other things. It didn't work. And by the time I walked through the door of the venue with that guitar, I was trying to think of how to tell him I was giving it to him without it being super awkward or emotional. Whatever I did end up saying definitely made it super awkward and emotional. <laughs> we hugged. He played. I listened, worshipped, and occasionally thought, what have I done? What have I done? I'm telling you this story at the risk of you thinking I'm fantastic, but I am not. I really didn't want to give it to him. Didn't. In fact, there was a time when I didn't even want him to borrow it anymore because of all the pick marks that he was putting below the sound hole. I tried to barter with God. I tried to despiritualize what I felt, even accusing myself of wanting to impress Randy or others as the guy who gave away the great guitar. 
I phoned my stepdad a few days later, feeling guilty, imagining that he'd remember the joy that we shared in, in unboxing the guitar and playing it. I, I imagined him grieving the, that loss, and, and, or maybe him thinking me uns, you know, hyper-spiritual or impulsive or immature in doing this. But that's not what happened when I told him. When I told him, he got really quiet, which was concerning at first on the phone. And then I heard him begin to sniffle a bit. And all I can remember now was him saying, well, the Lord gave it to you to give to Randy, didn't he? You know, uh, that's how I felt. But if you go to Randy Chester's YouTube channel, he has one. Uh, He also does a one-man band thing. He's He's got all sorts of drums on that very guitar. He's still playing it. It's beat up, and the pockmarks have collectively carved out a second sound hole. It looks like Willie Nelson's guitar, (laughs) if you know what that looks like. He's written and performed hundreds of songs on our guitar, on God's guitar. And the way I see it, the bread that has multiplied through his ministry over the years is impossible to quantify. I've only got to play a tiny part with a guitar that I have since replaced and almost never think about. And I'm not some kind of exemplar of generosity. Listen, I forget how this stuff works all the time. As often as I remember it. But what I am, again, not an exemplar, but I am a witness with a story of God turning my reluctant obedience into joy. And so are you. So are you. That time in my life was one of many sorrows, too, as I watched my father, not my stepfather, my, uh, my father's life spiral deeper into addiction, I felt there was a season of incredible helplessness and grief. It was always near, including persistent frustration with God. What are you doing? Why do I feel this way? What's going on? So let me just say this as your pastor in closing. I know many of you are hurting. I know that You have been or still are in a season of healing. Many of you are still in a kind of wilderness, spiritually. But I would be letting you down if I didn't remind you that you're a witness to. And there's never an optimal time for obedience, for leaning in, for partnership with Jesus in whatever it is he's going to do and is doing. Jesus longs to open your hands and to give through them. That is one of the most dignifying things you can ever experience. You're not sidelined no matter where you are. Your circumstances aren't some kind of disqualification. In fact, I honestly believe that your healing and your renewal will probably actually include some reluctant participation in obedience with the seemingly insignificant bit that you do have, even if you think it's nothing. That's going to be part of it. Without a doubt, we have an enemy who wants the joy you lack now to parade as the joy you're going to lack later, to diminish the joy you hope to have, an enemy marginalizing you in a hard season. And that's part of how he'll do this. It's for you to think you don't have enough. But the truth is you don't. Jesus does. When we're hurting, it's often so hard to imagine that we are part of the abundance of God's love and provision. When the circumstances are really difficult, it's hard not to be doubtful and cynical. I get that. 
I've felt that. I really have. But what's at stake really is, is our own healing and joy, is our, our, our sense of our own dignity in Christ. We are made for this kind of heavenly participation. And it's only when we are doing what we are made to do that we experience the greatest joy that we could possibly hope for. To be sure, when that participation is focused on outcomes or driven by guilt or approval, there's little joy to be had. I've experienced that too. But when we say yes, when we say yes, knowing where the bread is coming from, we can expect something like a full basket when it's all said and done. A demonstration that the economy of God, it doesn't work like ours. But it takes acting in faith. It certainly doesn't depend ultimately on us. And that's a real relief. Here's the last thing. We celebrate this Thanksgiving meal every Sunday reminded that abundant generosity never impoverishes the giver. It can't. Jesus empties himself and is yet overflowing to us 2,000 years later. We have a tendency to live as though the opposite is true if, when we think of ourselves. If we give our time or we give our attention or money or patience and our forgiveness, we tend to believe it somehow reduces us, that it impoverishes us. We operate with a zero-sum game, but every Sunday we witness that that's not how the world, the kingdom, that history and where it's headed really works. Jesus, who longs to bring us alongside himself and to give us his abundance, he is the living, breathing, holy expression of the first half of Proverbs eleven twenty four, which says, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Even though we find ourselves fulfilling the second half of Proverbs eleven twenty four, which says, another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. So we might look at ourselves, our situation, or the state of the world, and we might find ourselves rehearsing all of Moses' objections in Numbers 11 when he said, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. Would, that they, have an, uh, would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? And as he often does, the Lord responds with a question. And I, I just want to put that question to you this morning. Is the Lord's arm too short? Is my arm too short? Family, I'm here, this bread and this wine are here to remind you that his arm is not too short. It's extended to you, for you, and he is longing to extend his arm through your life. That's what we're made for. I just want to encourage you to give him a chance to prove it. His arm is not too short. Lord, teach us that in just down into the, the deep parts of our soul where both hurt and misinformation and our histories and lies find their way and tend to order our lives. We pray that you would redeem us, that you'd heal us, that you would reteach us you would empower us. Jesus, help us to want above all things to be with you, to do, to do the things you've called us to do with you. There's nothing we can bring that would amount to doing something for you, ultimately. But help us in this ministry of being with you, no matter what we're experiencing or where we are.
We love you. We thank you for your compassion for us. We are the wretched ones. But you love us, you see us, you bless us, and you feed us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.